Well, good morning, everybody. Um, let me ask, first of all, just for a show of hands, how many people have ever heard of the Enneagram? Okay, most people have, good. Is there anybody here that attended the Enneagram conference last year? Couple people have, good. Then this is the only person that'll know if what I tell you is wrong. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my fear was that I was gonna get the people that not only attended the conference, but also went to the boot camp afterwards. But, uh, uh, so, uh, just a little bit of brief history of my history with the Enneagram. I was introduced to the Enneagram probably 20-something years ago in a class just like this one uh, by a minister and uh, just kind of forgot about it. And then some years later, uh, about 10 or so ago, I think, I decided that I really wanted to begin to study it. And so I uh, bought a book by Richard Rohr and fell into it and got lost and uh, I'll talk a little bit about books and recommendations toward the end, but uh, I was interested in Richard Rohr, Rohr's book because it, the, the title of that book is The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. And so Rohr probably more than anybody else does a good job of introducing people to the spirituality of the Enneagram, which is the part of it that I'm most interested in. Uh, in retrospect, I would say it's not the best book as an introduction. It's very thick, uh, it's very detailed, and it's very easy to get lost in there. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about recommendations uh, afterwards. But so I have for somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 years, I think, uh, been studying the Enneagram. Uh, Richard Rohr, there's a couple of teachers called Rizzo Hudson who are probably some of the best known teachers uh, and some others. But uh, going to the Enneagram conference myself last year uh, here that Ian Crone and Suzanne Stabile did, uh, I honestly think Suzanne Stabile is the best Enneagram teacher that I've ever experienced. Um, and just as a plug for those of you that may not be aware, they are coming back again this year to do that conference the 31st of March and the 1st of April. Um, and I also happen to know, I, don't, I have not heard it advertised within the church circle, but I do happen to know that that will also be followed up by another boot camp experience. This one will be at uh, Christ Church on Altigre Boulevard. I'm not exactly sure of the date, but I think probably similar. It'll be a few weeks past uh, the conference. Um, so I have found the Enneagram very useful personally, just you know, in, in understanding myself and other people. Uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, its usefulness in personal growth and particularly in helping you develop compassion for other people, which is one of the things, one of the areas where I feel like it's impacted me quite a bit. Um, and uh, I find it useful in my work as a therapist as well. I also do spiritual direction. Uh, and it is, you know, often used by spiritual directors. Uh, but what, you know, what I have an opportunity to do today is just really give you kind of an appetizer. It's going to be a very broad overview of what the Enneagram is and the various types. Uh, we'll talk about how it can be useful uh, in growth, but you're really gonna get, hopefully, just enough to make you uh, wanna go deeper with it. So, uh, first of all, the Enneagram is a system for understanding yourself and other people. Uh, that's its most, at its most basic level uh, through these nine interrelated types. And we'll talk a little bit about how those types are interrelated. 
Uh, the Enneagram applies to everybody, sort of like the Myers-Briggs, which you didn't hear last week. Um, everybody's on there somewhere. This is not a system about finding out, you know, do you have something wrong with you? Um, so uh, this is something that is useful to everybody. Everybody is on here somewhere. Um, so this is what the Enneagram looks like, and, and I really tried to wrestle with do I want to do PowerPoint or not, and the Enneagram, so much of it is visual that I really couldn't think of a way to do it justice without some sort of visuals. Um, but, but that's what it looks like. It's uh, these interconnected uh, lines. It's nine types that are distributed around uh, this circle and uh, as we kind of begin to get into it. So the, those, uh, that diagram and those types, I mean, that get, the diagram has actually been traced to Pythagoras. Uh, whether it goes back further and ask, somebody's excited. Uh, you know, he had a theorem is as much as I know about Pythagoras. Um, I don't think it was the Enneagram, but, um, but it is very interesting that uh, they, they can trace this diagram when, when did Pythagoras work? When, when was his time? <laughs> Ancient Greece. Okay. Uh, and, you know, and then the ideas behind the types, I mean, go back to the Desert Fathers, the, the precursors of the monks, the, the early folks that went off into the desert to seek God. Uh, and then there are these, they can find these little traces of it through the centuries, but it was really sort of something that grew and uh, was passed on in secret within communities like monastic communities and so forth. Um, and so it, it, it wasn't something, it's not anything that anybody owns. Um, like, I mean, the Myers-Briggs types, we can trace those to their origins, um, but nobody owns the Enneagram. And so uh, somewhere, I, th I think there were some, there's some places where it began to surface and the late 19th century, or at least there's some teaching that sort of relates to it. Uh, but really, it was not until kind of the mid 20th century that we can begin to sort of find people that are actively teaching about it. And it sort of, at that point, became the cat that got out of the bag. Um, and so it's been appropriated by lots of different teachers. And as a result, uh, lots of different teachers use it for different things and put different spins on it. There's some people who are interested in it primarily from standpoint of how to, you know, get, uh, make people work better together in a, in a working environment. There are people who are interested in it in a sort of romantic relation. You know, how does it help you understand a, a romantic partner? Um, and then, of course, there are people uh, like Richard Rohr and um, others, Suzanne Stabile, that are interested in it as a, as a system of um, spiritual growth. Uh, and, and as it's sort of evolved, they're stirring in these insights that come from other teachers like Carl Jung and some Thomas Merton and, uh, and different folks, names, other names that are not as well known. Um, so, okay, I'm sorry, I'm going to jump ahead here because I, I did a little last minute editing this morning and uh, we'll, we'll get to that part later. So we'll talk a little bit now just about the basics uh, of the Enneagram. Now, if I were to teach you about trees, and you knew nothing about trees, what I would not do is say, well, here's what a sycamore tree is like, and here is what an elm tree is like, and here is what a dog tree is like. 
Uh, if I were teaching you about trees and you didn't know anything about trees, I would start with some very basic things about all trees and then we would begin to broad out about how trees are different. Um, what I find in a lot of books about the Enneagram is that people say, well, here's what a one is like and here's what a two is like and here's what a three is like. And I don't think that's the most helpful way to really understand it. Uh, I find in my own study what I have found most helpful is not trying to memorize the characteristics of different types but to, to try to understand how the types are related and how they are together. And so uh, just to begin with, um, the Enneagram theory says that you, me, all of us are born with three uh, native intelligences. That is three ways of understanding, relating, taking in information from the world. And those three uh, intelligences are thinking, feeling, and doing. Um, we're born, according to this view, uh, with those three ways of relating to the world in balance. And what happens as we grow is that one of those becomes dominant and preferred and one of those becomes repressed. Uh, we almost forget to use it, whereas this one that becomes dominant preferred, we sort of naturally use it all the time. And we really kind of lose sight of the fact that we're, um, uh, that, that we're missing something. And uh, the third intelligence ends up serving the dominant intelligence. So just with that in mind, we're going to start understanding the Enneagram uh, through these triads. A triad is a group of three. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, I am not smart enough to create these uh, graphics, these visuals. So I stole these off the Internet. Um, and I don't know of any way to literally hijack them. If I could, I would take the word instinctive out and I would put in the word body uh, and I would take the word triad out and put in the word center. Um, as we go forward, the words triads and centers are sort of um, equivalent. Uh, there are three centers and uh, each center is made up of three, so they're also known as triads. The instinctive triad is also known as the body triad or the gut triad. Uh, then we have the feeling triad, which is also known as the heart triad, and the thinking triad, also known as the head triad. So, whoops. Um, so, there we go. So, each of those triads then relates to one of those ways of relating to the world. We have uh, the head center or the head triad is the thinking triad, the feeling triad is the heart triad or center, and then the doing triad is the gut or body or instinctive center. I, I prefer... Uh, the term gut. Um, the gut triad uh, is so named because the people who fall into this triad are people who experience the world's, you know, kind of in their gut. I mean, they don't have any filters. Things come at them and they, and they, they react. Um, eight, nine, and one. Eight, nine, and one. Yeah, we'll, we'll go through those here in a minute. Um, so they're, they're really kind of, uh, they're, they're folks that, that when, the, when something comes in, they have kind of a, a gut reaction. It doesn't mean that they necessarily are aware of it as such because it's just natural. Um, the folks that fall into this triad, eight, nine, and one, are all concerned with autonomy. Um, and I kind of think of this in terms of uh, not uh, autonomy in the sense of that I don't want anybody else to control me. Um, ego boundaries and, and you know, they're, they're sort of kind of this, in this resistance to reality. Uh, and all of them in one way or the other are, they have some underlying issues around anger. Uh, 
So um, if we look at type eight, type eight folks externalize anger. They express it directly. Uh, they're very direct in their communication. They'll tell you exactly what, they, uh, what their reactions and their, what they're thinking is. Um, type nines, on the other hand, try to avoid feeling anger. And so, and, and they don't want to feel it, they don't want to express it, and so uh, they can be a little passive aggressive. But when I say they to try to avoid feeling it, they're often not even aware that they are angry. Uh, type ones are, you know, thought of as in, in trying to sort of internalize that. They're, they're kind of holding things in, um, not always effectively, and so for them, they may hold on to resentments uh, if someone uh, hurts them in some way. Uh, okay, moving on to the feeling triad now. Um, these folks uh, are people who, who's, uh, where they touch the world and interact with the world is around emotions. It doesn't mean that they're more emotional, nor does it mean that they're more in touch with their feelings. In fact, we'll find out uh, that they're not necessarily in touch with their feelings. Their, their underlying concern is with approval and image, um, and ultimately what they're defending against is shame. Uh, we'll go through these in a little more detail. Uh, whoops. And, okay, there we go. Wow. Touchy, touchy. Um, so this is types two, three, and four. Types two, uh, type two folks are really focused on the feelings and needs of others. The most natural thing for them to see is what somebody else needs, and then they kind of run off and do it. Um, and they really lose sight of their own needs. Um, type three folks uh, set aside their type for the sake of productivity. They're really kind of out of touch with their feelings uh, and out of touch with other people's feelings. It doesn't mean they're completely oblivious, uh, but they're, the, the sort of the grid that they have for the world is uh, they see their value in being productive and being successful and, and attaining some level of achievement. Um, type four folks are uh, very internally focused, but uh, they, they sort of brood about their feelings and their feeling, if they're happy, they're not happy enough. If they're sad, they just could be sad. I mean, they're, uh, they're really kind of hard to, they can be a little bit hard to describe, uh, but experience, whatever they're experiencing is never quite enough. And so they're always sort of looking for something deeper, something more full. And so now we're gonna move over to the thinking triad. And uh, let me just point out, if you look there at the bottom, you see all these lines connecting and there's not a line connecting between four and five. Uh, not a direct line, and uh, the way the diagram is supposed to work, that's actually the, the distance between, the, the greatest distance between any two points is between four and five, if you get the diagram just right. Um, represents the fact that the, the longest 18 inches in the world is the 18 inches from the head to the heart, um, and as Terry would be very familiar with in our work in therapy, uh, we often see people who kind of get it here, but they don't get it here. Uh, they sort of understand something intellectually, but they, it's very hard to kind of get it uh, at a deeper emotional level. So we're moving from the, uh, from the heart space to the head space, the thinking space. These folks live in their heads. They experience their world through thinking. Um, so they're most in touch with thoughts and not so much in touch with, uh, with feelings or, or their reactions to things. The, the, the urges to act. Um, ultimately, their concern is safety and security, and they're defending against fear and anxiety. So that's five, six, and seven. Uh, I'm a type five, by the way. 
uh, tight fives, uh, you know, they're all about taking in information. So they tend to be bookish. They tend to have big libraries. Looking at my wife now. Uh, they have too many books. Um, <laughs> way too many books. Uh, and, uh, you know, I like to say some people drive cars. I drive a, a, you know, mobile library, you know, bookmobile. So that if my car runs off the road and I'm stranded, I can read for days, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll never run out of reading material. I keep all these books in my car. Um, so they, they gather and hold on to information. We can always find out more about something, you know. Um, kind of what comes with that is we're slow to act about it because we, we want to think about it some more. Uh, type 6 folks are worst case scenario thinkers. Uh, they defend against uh, fear and uncertainty and anxiety um, by attaching themselves to an outside authority and then fiercely clinging to that uh, outside authority. Um, type 7 folks are um, folks who are going to just keep moving. They're going to avoid the experience of fear by always coming up with something fun, uh, the next fun thing to do. Uh, and so now that we've sort of learned about the types and the centers and some of their ultimate concerns, I'll take you around the Enneagram and we'll talk about the, um, the specific types. So we're going to start, we're going to stay with our centers. And so, uh, well, we actually started at the top. I thought we were going, there we go. Now we're going to start with eight. That's where I meant to start. Okay. So uh, type eight, remember, that's in the gut type or the body type. Um, they're called, in, in this system, they're called a challenger. Let me take just a minute and say again, nobody owns the Enneagram. You, you can find different books that will uh, use different labels or different names for the different types. Um, uh, when we get to type one in this system, they call it the reformer. I've actually seen one system that calls type eight the reformer, and that's both, and that's true as well in a different way. Uh, but eights are the challengers. They're people who are going to, um, they're, they're driven by the need to oppose. Uh, they're really almost, in my experience, is like they're, they're, they're going to define themselves by what they're against. Um, but they're also really good at taking, at, at at seeing injustice and taking it on. So uh, they're, they'll, they'll get taken up in some causes. Uh, they're very direct, they can seem pushy, um, and, uh, and it can be argumentative, but this is the way that they connect with people. It's very different than some other types. Uh, if they kind of push you, give you a, an assertive, uh, they assert themselves in a particular direction and you assert themselves uh, you assert yourself in a different direction. That may look like argument, but they're going, oh good, now I got somebody I can connect with. That's the way that they connect. Nines, on the other hand, are the peacemakers. Uh, nines will easily lose their agenda and their needs and whatever yours are. And when I say lose them, I don't mean they'll set them aside. I mean, they can easily be persuaded that, you know, um, if, if you want this and they want that, they can easily be persuaded that that's really better. I mean, they just, they'll go along, and, and a lot of this is so unconscious. They don't uh, necessarily recognize what they're doing. They just sort of naturally uh, sort of blend in with somebody else. As individuals, they're really people who do not put out a lot of energy. Eights put out a lot of energy. Nines do not. And so uh, they're sometimes kind of thought of as almost invisible. Um, yeah. Quote, they let's see. They start out slow and 
Yeah. <laughs> was that Suzanne? Yeah, be? Okay. Um, so, and that's her husband, you know, so she, her, she's married to a nine. Um, type one, they're, in this system, they're called the reformers. Now, what type one folks are going to do, they're really good at seeing where things need to be corrected, really good at seeing what's wrong, um, and, you know, are almost compulsive about telling you, you know, that you need to fix this. Uh, one of the examples Suzanne uses uh, in her teaching is that type ones cannot not reload the dishwasher. You know, people throw things in the dishwasher and type ones are going to go back and, and rearrange, you know, everything so that it'll be nice and you can get the most in there. And inside their head, they're going, I don't know why these people can't load a dishwasher. Uh, so, so they're very aware of that, you know, but rather than, you know, say an eight might go and say, just say something to you, the ones are going to reload it and then... Um, and as I say, they, they're kind of compulsive about telling you where things are wrong. And, you know, sometimes uh, people in a relationship with them don't appreciate their help. Um, so moving now into the heart space, we're going to talk about type twos. They're the helpers. Uh, they are driven by the need to be needed. Remember now we're moving into the space where everyone's concerned about how they're seen by others. Uh, type twos want to be seen as helpful. And so... Uh, they will, they will uh, you know, do you need a drink? Can I get you this or that? And they'll, they'll, they'll just kind of naturally anticipate what other people need, uh, and then they'll go kind of take care of it. And um, while they're not always aware of this, there's this underlying expectation. Uh, they expect to be appreciated for that. And if they're not appreciated at the level that they think they should be appreciated at, then they're not going to be happy about that. Um, the, the danger with type twos is they really lose touch with their own needs. They're so busy looking to the needs of everybody else. Uh, so they can be in, in unhealthy levels a little bit of a martyr. Uh, type threes are the achievers. And remember now, this is the concern is with image uh, and approval. And for type threes, they really want, they really want your applause, your recognition. Um, they're very attached to uh, status symbols and um, you know, so they're going to dress a certain way and drive a certain kind of car. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, I had a client one time who um, was talking about as a successful person, uh, but who was, who was coming to see me in a bit of a crisis. Uh, and he comes in one week, and he's actually doing much better. Uh, I have a, a little uh, tool that I use that I get people to sort of rate themselves. And his rating went up. Uh, significantly and I said well tell me what's better and uh, his response was well I got out of the office and I went and you know interacted with some of our customers and I got you know all this appreciation from them and all these attaboys and um, you know so just a good week uh, and then when we began to talk about it um, what he was able to recognize is that you know while he thought he was doing a good job his own opinion of himself didn't matter uh, he needed external validation. Um, and so uh, threes can kind of lose touch of what their value is apart from what they're doing. Um, that's unfortunately kind of all about that. Would it be appropriate to say they either seek the spotlight or have difficulty not being in the spotlight or something like that? I, I think that's true. And, you know, I have a little visual image icon uh, in my head for the achiever and it's somebody who's you know riding a unicycle on a high wire while they're juggling you know some balls you know did somebody else have a comment yeah Dave so 
one of the things I find valuable about the Myers Briggs is it's very easy to determine. Uh, while I may not be sensing, there clearly are positive contributions a sensing person brings uh -huh. into my life. I'm struggling, say, with the three, for example. Mm -hmm. um, what what's positive about this? Is there a good resource out there that sort of uh, illuminates the the pro for each of these types? Um, I think uh, that Richard Rohr's book does, and it, you know, and Suzanne's Ian and Suzanne's book, which I'll talk about at the end, you know, does as well. Threes get things done. Okay, so that's a good reframe. Yeah, I mean, they get things done. And, uh, and so they're, they tend to be very productive. Okay. Uh, so, so as an example, for those, uh, um, let, let me go two down, and then I'm going to come right back to that. Okay? That's good. Thank uh, you. Okay, sure. Uh, and I've got some, we'll talk a little bit more about that, just not in as much detail as you might like. So fours are the individualist. Another uh, system will call them the tragic romantic romantics. Uh, fours, you know, in terms of concern about image, I mean, they're different. They are going to dress different. They're going to, you know, they see them, they see themselves as individuals. Nobody's quite like me. Nobody feels like I feel. Nobody experiences the world like I experience the world. And again, so there's always this sense of something is missing. And they see everybody else, they tend to see everybody else has what I'm missing. Uh, and yet they don't want to be just like everybody else. They want to be, they want to be different. Um, oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, did I, so I, hopefully I just jumped there. I wasn't paying attention. So the type five is the investigator. Um, as a type five, what I will tell you is that, you know, first of all, I live in my head. I think all the time uh, when I'm shampooing my hair, I'm thinking about something. Uh, and I'm not thinking about shampooing my hair. And so I, I very frequently will have the experience of being you know, in the shower and I'm going, have I shampooed my hair yet or not? Because I can't remember. Uh, you know, one of the stories about Albert Einstein, and I'm not necessarily making myself out to be an Einstein. Einstein was walking across college campus one day and somebody meets him and greets him and says, you know, Dr. Einstein, I'd love to take you to lunch. And Einstein reportedly said, um, when we met, which direction was I walking? And the person said, you were walking this way. Oh, well, in that case, I've already had lunch. I mean, Einstein couldn't remember. Um, so they tend to be kind of eggheads. They, you know, they're so into their thoughts that they're detached from their feelings. Uh, one of my concerns is just understanding the world. I mean, I'm constantly looking at patterns and so stuff like this. I mean, this is why I eat this up because this is a system that has all this detail to it and all these patterns to it and it attempts to explain things that otherwise are mysterious. Okay. So back to your question, Dave. Um, for those that are familiar with Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton was a type four. Um, so he, he is someone who, uh, as a type four, he lives in that, uh, that feeling world. Uh, and, uh, and he's sort of, I mean, Thomas Merton went off and lived in a hermitage. I mean, he, he first of all went off and joined a monastery and that wasn't secluded enough for him. And so he begged to be a hermit in the last few years of his life, they let him go live in a, in a hermitage. Um, and so he just kept withdrawing, withdrawing, withdrawing. Um, Thomas Merton was a four who had, and we're not really going to get to talk about wings very much, but, 
part of the Enneagram is every, whatever number you are, there's two numbers on either side of you, and you have, to some extent, developed at least one of those wings, maybe, maybe both, but you have some energy that comes from the, the type, one of the types that's next to you. Merton was a four who had both a five wing, that is, he was concerned with, you know, Mer all of Merton's books are about, you know, the world and explaining the deepest parts of reality, but he also had that three wing developed, which means that he was able to churn out a lot of books. He was very, very prolific, very productive. Um, so the good things about threes is they get things done. Um, fives, I mean, just since you mentioned, I mean, one of the nice things about fives is if, if you want a detached objective opinion about something, ask a five. Um, and, and, you know, just take it as a detached objective opinion. It's a source of information, not necessarily the right thing to do. Um, the six is the loyalist. And um, the loyalist, again, sort of now we're in the headspace and, you know, it's, it's searching for security and certainty. And so they attach themselves to somebody else. Now, sixes can be, uh, when I say somebody else, systems like uh, nationalism and religion and so forth. Um, I'll also mention that um, there are national cultures that reflect these types. America is a very six culture. Uh, one of our mottos is united we stand, divided we fall, which basically America values loyalty, particularly loyalty to country, right? I mean, if, if you betray us, we call it treason and we will kill you for that. Uh, America has this very, very high value. And it's very different, by the way, from Switzerland, which is, you know, a different kind of culture. Switzerland, nines, you know, we're gonna get along with everybody. Um, one of the nice things about sixes, if you're in a relationship with a six, uh, you know, they're going to be loyal to you. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to cheat you. They're not going to walk away. They're not going to do away with you. Sixes are, are very fiercely loyal. Once they've decided that, you know, they want to connect to you, they're going to stay connected to you. Um, the, the downside of a six is they really don't trust their own resources. And so they're constantly looking for something bigger than themselves or someone, you know, that they view as smarter to connect themselves to, uh, and then they'll be loyal to that person. And sort of once, they, uh, once they've kind of decided that you're the expert, they're, they're not even gonna bother to try to question you. They're, you know, say go left, okay, we'll go left. So, okay. Uh, seven is the adventurer. Um, you know, I, I'm gonna do this at, at Agape, and when I do it at Agape, my type seven slide is gonna have a picture of Tracy Hall. Uh, <laughs> if you know Tracy, uh, I, I, have the, I have the picture picked out of Tracy Hall being a seven. Uh, sevens are fun. They're great people to be around. They're the life of the party. Uh, they, uh, but sevens are, you know, they're, they're, their whole mode is they're just going to keep moving. They're, uh, they're going to, you know, find something. What's the next fun thing we're going to do? Um, now, they can have trouble... Uh, dealing with difficult situations. I mean, you know, they're, they're kind of classic avoiders uh, to some extent. Uh, and sometimes they have trouble uh, sticking through something and following through. That's not true of Tracy. Uh, but um, but I, I see elements of the seven. And I mean, Tracy says he's a seven and I'll trust him on that. So, okay, we've been all the way around now, the different nine types. It's, it's best to understand that, um, again, to try to understand types uh, don't necessarily try to memorize all of those 
uh, different characteristics because those characteristics can be a bit misleading. Um, you, you know them more by their energies and their motives than by the superficial characteristics. Suzanne Stabile in the conference last year, and I think most of you said you attended that. Is that right? Nobody attended that, just, just a couple, yeah. So uh, in the conference last year, Suzanne talked about she's a two and her husband Joe is a nine. And she said, you know, where they live in Texas, uh, every Saturday night they would drive into town and with their kids and they'd go someplace to eat. And so, you know, they would do this thing, where do you want to go eat? And she'd say, you know, Joe wanted uh, barbecue and she wanted chicken, but their three kids wanted pizza every Saturday, pizza, pizza, pizza. Uh, and she said by the time they got into town, Joe would have decided that actually pizza sounds really good. Um, and she would say, uh, okay, well, let's go have pizza. Um, Reason being, Joe, because he's a nine, he just blends in with what everybody else wants. He doesn't have, no, I'm tired of pizza. I want, you know, barbecue. Um, he would just kind of decide that pizza sounds good and just kind of go with it. Whereas she would go along with it, not because she wanted to, but because she, as she puts it, I want my kids to think I'm cool. And so to please them, she would decide pizza would be good. She's aware that she doesn't want pizza. Joe loses that awareness. Um, Richard Rohr has uh, something that he says, he says, you'll know them by their energies. And uh, initially, I didn't really understand what he meant by that until I got kind of further deep into it. Uh, okay, so every type has a gift uh, for seeing something that others are more likely to miss. And we've talked about that a little bit. Twos are, in, are sensitive to the needs of others, eights to injustices, ones to what needs, and so forth. But every type also has something they tend to miss. Uh, twos lose their own needs. Three lose their awareness of their value outside of uh, what they're producing. Nines, because they just sort of blend in, they never realize they actually have something to contribute. Um, so th these are just some things, I mean, we're not going to go into this at all, but just to give you an idea that there are some levels, uh, levels and levels of understanding that help you uh, use this. And, and I just simply, again, I hope to that this is an appetizer to, to whet your appetite a bit. Um, so I want to talk now just a little bit about how the Enneagram is useful uh, in the process of spiritual growth. Um, and uh, Frederick Bickner, who is my favorite writer, has pointed out that Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, for all of their differences, agree on this one point. And that is that human beings, as we find them, are not the way they're created to be. Uh, there's something wrong with us. Uh, and these different systems have different answers and different myths to sort of explain what is wrong with us. Um, the Enneagram, whoops. The Enneagram provides you know, a particular way uh, for us to understand what's wrong with us and particularly what to do about it. Man, this is, okay. So from this perspective, we are born in wholeness uh, and, uh, and we develop personality along the way. Personality, uh, in this sense, has to do with those, the way that we learn to react to the world, almost defensively. Uh, and the problem is that over time, we become uh, so attached and so identified with, with how we experience things through our personality that we really lose sight of the fact that that's not us. It becomes sort of the autopilot thing. And growth becomes a matter of 
of uh, losing that identification and getting back in touch uh, with what would be called the true stuff self. So uh, in, in terms of personal growth, there are really kind of this, and these are just some things that, that I've identified. You know, we could, we could go much deeper than this. But the Enneagram helps you understand how you're responding out of autopilot, uh, responding blindly, and, and helps you develop that awareness. Uh, it helps you to be able to respond intentionally rather than just reacting out of that autopilot. Uh, and then finally, developing humility and compassion uh, versus pride and judgment. Now, um, so I want to just give you a little bit of a, of a true story uh, about, about how that works. And so um, during the first year of our marriage, uh, my wife and I went to visit uh, my parents in the home that I grew up in. And uh, from what I remember about that night, we went into my parents' house, we sat down in the living room, we had a pleasant evening and we got in the car to leave. Uh, here's something else that happened. As we get in the car to leave, my wife turns to me and says, why did you do that to me? And I went, what? What did I do? And she proceeded to explain to me her experience of the evening, which was we went into my parents' living room, we sat down, I picked up a newspaper and did this for the entire evening, leaving her to carry the conversation on our part. And when she said that, I went, oh my gosh, she's right. Uh, I was suddenly aware that when I walked into my parents' house in the home that I grew up in, I went into autopilot and did exactly what I did for 20-something years, which was uh, to submerge, to disengage. Um, and once I realized that, so every time I went to my parents' house after that, I was aware of the impulse to pick something up like a newspaper or a magazine. And being aware of it, I would not do that, and I would try to make myself intentionally engage. Uh, I've noticed that even going to visit my mom, who's lived alone for many years in, in a condo that I've never so much as spent the night in, never grew up in, but, and, and I love my mom, you know, have no problems, but I, I would notice it when I go to my mom's house, I start looking for a magazine. Uh, I've, so being aware of this, how I react on autopilot, gives me then the opportunity to say, no, I'm gonna do this differently. And, and so that's just a, a very quick little um, idea about how self-awareness must precede, uh, you know, change. So uh, just a couple of more quick points. Um, one of the things that we don't want to do is we don't want to use the Enneagram as, uh, as an excuse for ourselves. Well, I'm just a five. Uh, well, I'm just a two. What do you expect? You know? Um, you know, don't use it as an excuse for your behavior. On the other hand, uh, don't use it as a stick to beat somebody else up with. If you weren't so much of a two, you know. Um, and, and so one of the things that I've come out of this is, is I have understood how I am broken, uh, and some of that brokenness is I cling to things that are comfortable and familiar to me rather than uh, being willing to kind of uh, risk stretching myself. I understand that somebody else might cling to something different, but they're broken just as I am broken. And so I love this quote uh, by Anne Lamont. I don't know if you can read it on that or not. She says, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together, they are much more like you than you would believe. So try not to compare your insides to their outsides. Um, so 
it's, it's really helped me that when I see something in somebody else that irritates me, to step back and act myself, ask myself, where does that come from? And if I can see that they're just doing the best that they know how to do, uh, trying to protect themselves, then I, it's easier for me to have compassion for that person. So, okay. So uh, if you, if you uh, by the way, if anybody wants these PowerPoint slides, let me know. I'll be glad to email them to you. Um, probably the best introduction from a Christian perspective is The Road Back to You, which is uh, Ian and Suzanne's book uh, that came out last fall. Again, they'll be here in about five weeks, I think. Uh, it's a very accessible introduction. Um, the uh, Richard Rohr's book, The Enneagram of Christian Perspective, goes much, much deeper. Uh, Suzanne Stabile, by the way, was mentored by Richard Rohr and is still being mentored by Richard. And so you get a lot of Richard Rohr's influence. And I really, really like the works of Richard Rohr. Uh, the Wisdom of the Enneagram by uh, Rizzo and Hudson uh, is another really, really good. And there are you know, hundreds of books out there. Um, that one from a particularly, it's sort of from a secular perspective. They'll talk about spirituality, but it's not, it's sort of a new agey spirituality. It's not really Christian spirituality, but it's a very, very helpful resource. Be aware that as you read different books, you're going to find people that use different language or they emphasize this rather than that. Uh, you can get on the internet and find, you know, enough to, you know, to read for the rest of your life, unless you're five, in which case you got to buy some books. So. so, Jim, for those who may yeah. not be aware, tell them about you can you can try going online and taking a questionnaire that will help you have enter into the world of the Enneagram. But it's that's not the Enneagram. The questionnaire is not. The yeah, the questionnaire is not the Enneagram. Uh, actually, if you Google Rizzo Hudson Enneagram, it'll take you to their site. They have a free version of a test that I don't think much of. Uh, it's, it's basically, it's just a sample of the questions. Uh, and then they have a paid version, which I think is about 10 or $15, which is much better. But generally what you're going to get from that is you're going to get a graph that shows you, uh, to what extent you answered consistent with this type, this type, this type, this type. And so it's not always that you're going to get something that says, oh, you are a five, you know, or you are a six. Um, and they'll say things like, uh, you know, there's a such and such percent chance that you're either this or that, but you might be this other thing. So, so it's, you know, I, I would encourage you not to kind of quickly try to type yourself, uh, but those resources are all uh, resources that can be helpful to you uh, in figuring out who you are. The Know Your Number is the conference that's coming up, and that's kind of the purpose of that uh, long weekend. So. Ian Crow now has a, a questionnaire. It's about 100 questions. When I took it, I thought, this is not going to work, but it did work. It was free. Well, I have seen that, and, and, and I took, you know, I haven't been able to actually find it, and I've, I've gone to his website. I mean, I think you may have put it on Facebook or something, and I may have taken it from somebody. No, I put it, I put it overlaid with Myers-Briggs, I think, because uh -huh. it's interesting to me to see how those types interact with Myers-Briggs. Yeah, so yeah. I, I don't know that I put that one up there. Well, thanks, Jim. This is, I, uh, some people have got to go 